All right, well, this morning we're going to be looking at another picture of Jesus in his word at a time when Jesus uh, used the same words of comfort that we considered last week. Uh, Jesus reveals himself to the Apostle John in a moment of lonely desperation. And he, he says these words that we always need to hear from Jesus. It is I, don't be afraid, fear not. So my prayer is that as we've looked at that this week and then again this week, that these stories would on the one hand convict you if you're someone who, uh, like me, often goes through the week thinking you don't need Jesus very much. And on the other hand, that it would convince you that no matter how desperately lonely or dark or difficult your circumstance, Jesus is with you. And he's there more than you could possibly imagine. So let's look together at Revelation 1, 9 through 20. I'd invite you to look there, and you can remain seated. We'll read Revelation 1, 9 through 20. This is God's word. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We pray that as we consider this vision of the risen Jesus that was given to John, that you would encourage us by it, that we would be made more and more by your Spirit uh, to conform to his image and to grow in his likeness that we would know you and follow you more dearly every day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So my working assumption this morning, and and I know this is a true assumption because I've spoken with a few people this morning, uh, is that whenever we come to worship together, we're all coming in the same way, from the same place. Maybe you're here a little frazzled after chasing a deadline this week, trying to make a living, maybe chasing a kid that's taken off across the grocery store. Maybe you're a little frazzled about that. Maybe you're here um, happy about some things, I'm sure. There's good news, but you're discouraged and disappointed about other things. Bad news, desperate for some good news this morning. 
You're probably here sensing a bit of guilt and shame for ways that you got it wrong this week. Uh, Maybe you're in need of a wake-up call to really take the Christian life seriously. You're wondering if you struck the right balance between work and family, whether you really got your priorities right as an employee, as a husband or wife, father, uh, son, daughter, student. All of these things, right? We're wrestling with some sins that we can't seem to shake and the sins of other people in our lives are shaking us up. Suffering has struck a blow in your family. Some things are looking up, some things are looking down. This is just real life that we're describing as believers and followers of Jesus and we're all in it together. Real life is hard for sinners and sufferers who desperately need grace. So don't be afraid to admit it this morning. Don't be afraid to admit that you, yes, even you, need Jesus today. So I want to travel uh, this, what I think is an under-traveled path to Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. I I think it's an under-traveled path by people who desperately need a vision of Jesus like what we get in these verses. Uh, We get a strong dose of Jesus and all he is for people like you and me who desperately need him. I want to study Jesus together for just a few moments. And students, I don't mean study him like there will be an exam at the end or a test or a quiz. I mean study him. Gaze at him intently in his word. Study Jesus together with amazement, with awe. Uh, The Puritan writer John Flavel, he, he made a great observation. He said that sometimes the more we spend studying other things, even good things, we can neglect spending time studying what truly matters, what is the most important thing. He says when you lose sight of the main thing, you're playing at a low game when really you could soar. He says, the study of Jesus Christ is the most noble subject that ever a soul spent itself upon. Those that rack and torture their brains upon other studies like children weary themselves playing a low game. The eagle plays at the sun itself. That's what it is to study Jesus in his word. So let's take a moment and look at this passage that shows us Jesus and all of his brilliance and all of his glory. Let's look at how he reveals himself to John in Revelation 1, 9 through 20. Just a simple outline to guide us. I want to show you three things about Jesus in this passage, three things. I want you to see where Jesus is. I want you to see who Jesus is. And I want you to hear what Jesus says, where Jesus is, who Jesus is, and what Jesus says. First, let's look at where Jesus is. All right, so in order to understand this, we have to think about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, as daunting as it may seem sometimes, as confusing as it may seem sometimes, the point of the book of Revelation is Jesus wins. It's about the victory of Jesus. It's meant to encourage believers living in the early church and in our day today, in the 21st century church, uh, to encourage believers who suffer tribulation, who suffer hardship, who feel the push of the world against them in persecution and the pull of the world against them in temptation. It's meant to encourage us with the work of King Jesus, our victorious, risen King Jesus, who is now reigning and who is coming to make all things new. That's what Revelation is about. It's a book about suffering and endurance and hopeful expectation of the coming King and hopeful expectation of the King who even now is reigning over all things and who even now cares for us. So what we're going to see in this vision of Christ in Revelation 1, 9 to 20, is it's this symbolic view of who Jesus is. And some of the symbolism can sound strange because we're not used to reading this kind of a book. 
But what's communicated through this symbolism should just fill our hearts with the sheer glory of Jesus. And I hope it fills your heart with Jesus' glory this morning. So let's look first at where Jesus is. Where Jesus is. To get at this, we have to think about where John is when he receives this vision. We're dropping into the first verses of Revelation where John tells us about where he was when he received this vision that will span the whole rest of the book. So look with me again, verse verse 9 of Revelation 1. John writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John is on an island called Patmos. Maybe he was exiled. That's what many people think. Others think maybe he fled persecution and he is hiding out on Patmos alone and and really distant from the church that he was serving. You know, this puts a little bit of distance between us and John because maybe we don't know what it's like uh, to run away or to be exiled to an island. Uh, But we have brothers and sisters in other parts of the world that understand this kind of persecution. Maybe a little bit different to us to think about John undergoing this because we don't really face that every day. But I think we can relate to John's sense of aloneness, his isolation. Uh, Just to think of one example, if you were uh, here at CPC during the early days of the pandemic, you'll remember that we lost our uh, meeting place at Chaparral High School. Suddenly we became online nomads, right? No place to gather. Uh, We found ourselves in the middle of a really discouraging season of isolation from our brothers and sisters. We were removed from the presence of of our brothers and sisters gathering for worship, hearing, uh, hearing the, the assurance of our forgiveness week after week, receiving this meal of grace week after week. We understand a little bit what that means, right? To be disconnected, isolated, alone. Maybe we get that a little bit now more than ever. At least at some point in your Christian experience, you will know what it's like to feel alone again. And that's why this passage is so encouraging to us. Uh, look, at, look at verse 12. This is where Jesus is. John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of those lampstands, John is going to see Jesus. But what in the world does it mean when John sees Jesus in the middle of seven lampstands? Well, in verse 20, uh, John receives an explanation about what this means in his vision. We read, as for the mystery of the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I know this is getting very symbolic, but don't miss the incredible comfort that it is to see Jesus in this place. He is in the midst of the seven churches. It's a symbolic number. It carries the meaning of fullness, completeness. Jesus is amid the seven lampstands. That is to say, he is with his church. He is in the midst of his church. He walks among his people as John sees him walking among the seven lampstands. There may be times in your life, like we've already thought about this morning, when you are absolutely isolated from the church. You don't even have to be away from the church to feel isolated from the church. Maybe it's because you think you have to be perfect and you haven't let anyone into your life and you're keeping up you know, a good show, even if you come week after week to this place to worship. Uh, Maybe suffering has come to your family and you know what it is to be away and you just can't make it because of illness, your own illness or someone else in your family. There are any number of ways you can feel alone, but remember, Jesus, the Son of Man, the King of Kings, we have just seen him walking in the midst of his church. He is always present with his people. 
He is always present with you in everything you face, everything you suffer, everything you have to endure. Even when you're distant and undergoing the darkest moment of distress, Jesus is right there. He's never absent. He's always present with his church. That's where Jesus is. Second truth about Jesus. We've seen where he is. He's present with his church. He's present with his church, whether they're gathered in one place or scattered in exile. Jesus is there with them. But look with me now about the second truth is who Jesus is. What is the second truth we see? We see who Jesus is. Verses 13 through 16. Very symbolic and very powerful language. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. We could go into all the nitty-gritty about all the symbolism here, but I think we can sum it up. And it's beautiful. It's powerful. Here John, in this, in this symbolic, uh, prophetic, visionary way of seeing Jesus, here's what he sees. He sees a pure, majestic, glorious person standing before him. We hear references here to Christ's office as a prophet, the sword that comes out from his mouth, the word of God. We have references to his office as our priest, the long robe and the sash. And we have his office as a king in this vision. He's identified as the son of man and the authority and the strength that you see in the burnished bronze as he's described. He's our prophet. He's our priest. He's our king. His white hair it, it corresponds with the ancient of days in Daniel 7. The roar of his voice. The prophets speak of God's voice like this roaring, raging river in the prophets. All this to say is that this person that John sees, this person who John sees in all his glory and splendor, it's God himself. God the Son, Christ resurrected and reigning in glory. Well, what does John do? I think he does what we all would do, right? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. A vision of the glory of Christ, whether it's a vision like John saw or like what we see when we're reading our, when we're reading our Bibles and we just come across just this amazing depiction of Jesus and we see Jesus more clearly in his word and we understand who he is and we get bowled over by the glory of Jesus, recognizing who he is and who we are. It, it should instill reverent fear in us. It might even instill fear of judgment in us. Has that ever happened? It might instill fear of judgment in us if we've spent more time studying our sin than our Savior. We might feel like we're standing before the judge and we're about to get the book thrown at us. And we would deserve it if that were the case. So I have to ask you this morning, have you recognized your sin and your need for Jesus? Who Jesus is and who you are in light of his holiness and majesty and glory. Like Isaiah, who experienced the vision of the heavenly temple with angels covering their faces and covering their feet and crying out, holy, holy, holy. Have you said like Isaiah, I'm done for. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm done for. You have to get to that point before a vision of Jesus and his word can be any comfort at all to you. You have to arrive at that point before any of this is good news. Otherwise, it's the most terrifying news you could possibly hear. If you're not falling at Jesus' feet as though dead, then his mercy to those who suffered condemns your self-centeredness. 
His devotion to his father's will condemns your rebellion. His refusal to give in to temptation, it condemns your sinful wandering. Jesus is law-keeping in all its perfection, displayed for us, perfectly obedient to God's will. And if you're not falling before Jesus as though dead, recognizing who you are, then there is no hope. And this is the most terrifying news of all. That's why I think it's so encouraging that we read in Revelation 1.17 those words that we've been thinking about last week and this week. These are the words to those who fall at Jesus' feet. John tells us, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, fear not. There's good news in our sin and in our suffering when we throw ourselves at our Savior's feet. He says, fear not. I wonder if John remembered being on the boat in the storm. The waves threatening to crush the wooden vessel, right? They were fearful, wondering where Jesus, the absent one, was. Maybe you remember that idea from last week. Jesus, the absent one. Jesus has gone away, and now he's the absent one in the story, at least as far as the disciples are concerned. But then John and the others, they see Jesus appearing in the chaos, calming the storm, calming their fears. And he says those words, right? It is I. Don't be afraid. I wonder if John remembers this. I'm glad these moments are written into the Bible because we need to hear those words too. We need to hear these words when we are totally brought to the end of ourselves, more faced with the glory of Jesus in his word, the holiness of Jesus, the perfection of Christ. We recognize our weakness and our sin. We need to hear those words where Jesus lays his hand upon us and says, fear not. Our Jesus is the exalted king of glory, but he is a king. Get this, who, despite who we are, stops and he stoops and he puts his hand on us and he says, fear not, fear not. So don't be afraid of Jesus, run to Jesus, no matter what's happening right now, no matter what you've done this week, no matter what's gone wrong this week, don't run away from him, run to him so that he may put his hand on you in the gospel and say, it is I, fear not, do not be afraid. Finally, We've seen where Jesus is. We've seen who Jesus is. But I want you to hear what Jesus says, what he says about himself. Jesus says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. When believers who uh, have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ um, shrink back in fear, from seeing Jesus, when that's our experience, when we shrink back in fear, sinners that we are, openly acknowledging how horribly messed up we are, what makes us shrink back and run away from Jesus is the voice of the law. The voice of the law in our ear yelling, you are condemned by what you've done. We hear the soul that sins will die and we see our holy savior in his word and we run. Our accuser, the devil, tells us, you're unworthy. Jesus would never put his hand on you. Jesus doesn't even want you near him. We're too dirty for this glorious king to lay his hand upon us. But the lawgiver, the one who perfectly kept the law, and this is the amazing truth, the lawgiver is the law keeper for us in our place. He's the one who has paid the penalty for everything we've done by dying on the cross in our place. So we cling by faith to Jesus. Desperate, weak arms wrapped around him, right? We're frail. We don't always get it right, but Jesus' strong hand took death's sting away, and there is nothing left to threaten you. 
The law cannot threaten you when you are clinging by faith to Jesus. The sting of death, says Paul, is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the one who holds the keys of death in Hades, in his gospel, he puts his hand on you and he says, it is I, don't be afraid. He puts one hand on you, and with the other hand, he holds up the keys. And I'll never get tired of that picture. He holds up the keys and he gives them a little rattle. He says, I hold the keys of death in Hades. This is what can threaten you. And I hold it in my hands. It's over. It's done. It has nothing against you now. I hold the keys of death in Hades. I've unlocked the cage of your condemnation. I have taken the scourge of your suffering. I have stood in your place. I have bled and died so that you can be free. So that you can know I'm always with you. And so that you never have to fear. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Because I live, whatever you're going through, whatever you've done, I am with you. That's where Jesus is. He is with his church. He is with you. I am the prophet who reveals God's will for your salvation, the priest who made the final sacrifice for your sin and who intercedes for you, and the king who subdues you to myself and rules over you and defends you from all your enemies. That's who Jesus is in this amazing vision. And I am for you. That's what Jesus is saying when he lays his hand on us in his gospel, when he shows us the keys of death in Hades in his other hand. I am for you. I have the victory. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from Jesus. He has removed everything that could possibly stand against us. That is where he is. That is who he is. And that's what he says to us in his gospel. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we need to see Jesus like this every day and to remember the good news that is for us, that Jesus is for us. We pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord, to live in light of your presence and the presence of Christ with us, knowing that you are not absent, but you are with us. And that in the gospel you say, it is I, don't be afraid. Father, we ask that that would be something that we rely on daily, and that that would change the way we live, that we wouldn't live in fear of being condemned, that we wouldn't live in fear of the circumstances that we face uh, being some sort of punishment. Lord, but we pray that we would cling to you by faith, that by grace, Lord, we would persevere, and that we would shine brightly for the gospel uh, as witnesses to your grace. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.